Beautiful. Thank you, JT and musicians. Beautiful music this morning. This is the last part in the series on the unseen world. If you look at the little bottom left-hand corner there, you'll see it's number 13. So 13 messages on the unseen world. And tonight, uh, this morning, I'm going to try to sum it up, answer really two questions that, uh, that I haven't answered yet concerning the unseen world. Now, we're going to Hebrews. Of course, we'll be baptizing and following the message, which is always a great joy. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the, the heroes of the faith, so to speak, the heroes of the Old Testament recorded in the New Testament. <clears throat> and uh, we've looked at this passage in our study, but it's been several months ago, and I wanted to end on this, and you'll see why in just a few moments. So... With that said, look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That was wise choosing, wasn't it? It'd be wise for us to choose that way. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had reckon, uh, respect unto the recompense of reward, or he had discernment about the end results and the consequences. And then verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Him who is invisible. We've been talking about this unseen, this invisible world or unseen world that is around us. The number one, of course, person in that unseen world is God himself. And here, in just this last verse, look at it again, 27. He endured. That word endured doesn't just mean he went through trials and tribulations. We all go through them. This particular Greek word, by the way, only used one time in the New Testament, and it's right here. According to Strong's Greek dictionary, it means to be, to be strong and steadfast. Zodiates translates the word to be strong and courageous. But he also says that uh, uh, it means... Uh, to go through with the right attitude. And so he endured all of the hardships he went through in his life. And this is how he did it. Next phrase, seeing him who is invisible. Seeing, the word seeing there doesn't just mean see with the eyes. It means to perceive. It means to recognize. Zodiates translates it as uh, not only seeing, but conversing or communing. So we keep our eyes on the Lord, we commune with Him, and He gives then that strength to endure the troubles and trials of life. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Speak to us in the next few moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In one of his books entitled Courageous Faith, Dr. Charles Stanley told of a time of tremendous difficulty for him. He was hurt 
he had been mistreated and people were angry at him and he was discouraged. The writer put it this way, and I'm quoting now, it was a time uh, of, of tremendous difficulties in his work at the church. He faced considerable opposition from a handful of angry people and I'm reading now, his heart was overwhelmed with discouragement. You know, pastors get hurt and discouraged and mistreated too, don't they? Absolutely. Even someone great like uh, Dr. Stanley. But I'm not, think, I'm not thinking about preachers this morning. I'm thinking about all of us. All of us go through trial, trials and difficulties and and uh, struggles and so forth. And we can become, as he did, uh, overwhelmed with discouragement. Well, in that book, he tells the story of a, of a friend he was visiting with, and the friend had a painting on the wall by Breton Riviera. The title was Daniel <clears throat> in the Lion's Den. Here's that painting, if you look at your screen. Daniel and the lion's den. And this friend said to Dr. Stanley, walk over and look at this painting. So they did. They walked over and looked at the painting. And he says, look at the picture and tell me what you see. Dr. Stanley described the scene as best he could. There was a prophet. He had a robe on. There were lions. There were bones laying on the floor from the last person that was put into the lion's den. And uh, there was serenity, a peaceful look on the face of Daniel, who held his hands behind his back and gazed up at the light streaming through the overhead bars. His friend said, anything else? He said, no, not that I can think of. And then it he says, and this, listen to the words. This friend said a few additional words, Dr. Stanley describes. Later, Dr. Stanley would call them, and I quote him now, one of the wisest, most powerful sermons I've ever heard. Here's what this friend said. Daniel doesn't have his eyes on the lions. He has them on the Lord. We get our eyes on the lions, don't we? The way Moses endured was by keeping his eyes on the one who was invisible, seeing the one that was invisible. The way Dr. Stanley and so many others endure is the same way. Remember the word redu uh, 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 endure doesn't mean just to go through trials. We all do that. It means to go through them with strength and courage and the right attitude. That's what we need, every one of us. And so, this is what I'm calling the primary goal of this study. This, this five minutes I just took. That's the primary goal of this study, is to, for us to realize we can look to the same one that, that Moses looked to, and Abraham, and, and the Apostle Paul, and, and through our trials, we can look to the unseen one. And trust Him. We can trust His unseen hand. Karen and I got saved when we were teenagers. 
We loved to go to revival meetings. We would go to revival meetings wherever they were happening around town. You know how you found out where they were? They were in something called a newspaper. <laughs> now, I know you young people, you never heard of such a thing. But they used to come out daily. You know? And anyway, we'd find revivals, and we would go wherever they were, if we, within driving distance, we would go. We were just teenagers. And one particular evangelist we loved, uh, Ed Ballou. How many of you have ever heard Ed Ballou? You have to be pretty old probably. Yeah, yeah. Ed Ballou used to sing a song that Karen and I loved. It was one of our favorite songs after we got saved. And it's entitled, The Unseen Hand. When we would go to a meeting, I just was hoping he would sing that song. He would start to sing it, and my eyes would water up. <laughs> and I would be moved every time. The words are so powerful. And I've thought about this song through the years. I sing it to the Lord. I wouldn't sing it to anybody else, but I sing it to the Lord. The words go like this. I'll just read a few lines. There is an unseen hand to me that leads through ways I cannot see. Hadn't that been true for you, believers out there? The second course starts with, This hand has led through shadows drear, but while it leads, I'll have no fear. The chorus goes, I'm trusting to the unseen hand that guides me through this weary land. When then some sweet day I'll reach that strand, still guided by the unseen hand. Boy, what Hebrews says here about Moses, Moses probably sang that song, didn't he? I'm trusting to the unseen hand. Now, I'm calling that the main purpose of this study. But we've looked at a lot of detailed stuff, some technical stuff. And to, today, I want to close out by tying up some loose ends on that technical stuff. So uh, if you look at your screen, let me recap just quickly. And uh, the unseen world, we've looked at God himself, the, the number one character in the unseen world. And we've looked at angels, where they came from and what they do. We looked at Satan, where he came from, his fall and what he does. And demons, demons are real. And uh, we talked about demons and their job. And then we talked about the abodes or the dwelling places of disembodied spirits and angels. Where do our loved ones go when they die? And uh, so forth. And so that's been a big part of our study. And uh, in the unseen world, we've covered these punishment places or abodes. Hell, Lake of Fire, Hades, Abyss, and Tartarus. Let me just throw one, uh, one more thought about the definitions here for these. Hell and the Lake of Fire are the same place. They're synonyms. Uh, they refer to the same place, and it is eternal punishment for the, for the lost. For unbelievers. Hades, if you remember, is a temporary place where lost people go. It's like the jailhouse before the trial, and then the hell is the penitentiary, you know. So uh, people uh, who are lost go to Hades. Now, don't take any comfort in that, because Hades is a place of torment and fire, the Bible says, just like hell. 
And then these last two, the abyss and Tartarus, are temporary places for angels, fallen angels. Some of them are there now. Some of them will be there a little later. Eventually, though, all the lost people and all the lost angels, fallen angels, all of those will be rolled over into hell itself, the lake of fire. Now, we also looked at, of course, the good places, the glorious places of of the unseen world, heaven, the new heaven and new earth, and the new Jerusalem. We looked at all three of these last week, even though we'd already looked at heaven. We just did a quick review. But uh, these are all three different. Heaven is the, is the place where God dwells right now. Uh, the third heaven, as the Apostle Paul called it. And, uh, and the new heaven and new earth has not been created yet. There's going to be a judgment on the earth by fire, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be glorious. And then the new Jerusalem is a big city, 1,500 miles long and wide and tall. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's not exactly heaven either, even though right now it appears it is in heaven because after the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the, um, the uh, judgment by fire, then we see the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down to the earth. Now, there's two. I want to tie up. These are the two words I want to tie up the loose ends today. Paradise and Abraham's bosom. Now, I have mentioned both of these, but I was careful not to define them because they're a little more difficult to define, as you'll see. I think you'll find this interesting if you'll follow me. It's a little technical, but it's, uh, it's in the Word, and uh, it's there for us to understand. So, there are two major views on... Uh, Abraham's bosom and paradise. Now, most everybody would agree that uh, these uh, two words refer to the same place. But where is that place and so forth? And, uh, uh, and when I say there's two views, I'm talking about two views among Bible-believing uh, theologians. I'm not talking about the liberal crowd out there. I, I don't really care what they believe. And, I don't, and, and, this, and the cults, they all have strange theories on what this and that means. I'm talking about among Bible-believing, traditional, evangelical scholars and theologians. There's two pretty distinct and different views on these two words. So let me define them in a short definition for you. Abraham's bosom in paradise... Before the cross and resurrection of Christ, Hades had two sides, two compartments, two realms. One was Abraham's bosom side, or the paradise side. And then two was the torment side, or the hell side. So, in this view, there was a time when paradise, or Abraham's bosom, was was connected to, to Hades or even really a part of Hades. But it was on the, the blessing side, not the torment side. It was on the side that was full of blessing and comfort and, and beauty and all of that. And so that's the first view. Here's the second view. 
Paradise and Abraham's bosom have always been synonyms of heaven. So, in this view, when an Old Testament saint died, he went to heaven to be with the Lord. So these are the two views. Let me elaborate on both of them just a little bit for you. Before the cross and resurrection of Christ, this is the first view, Hades had two sides, two realms, two compartments. That word is used a lot. Uh, and number one was, the one side was for Old Testament believers. And this side was called Abraham's bosom or paradise side. And then two, the other, uh, the other side was for unbelievers, which is called torment or the hell side. When Jesus died, he descended into Hades and took the paradise side to heaven. So now Abraham's bosom, paradise, is in heaven. And the hell side of Hades is still there in Hades. Now that's the view number one. It may seem a little strange to some of you if you've never heard it before. But again, this is held by, this view is held by a lot of people. For instance, let me just read to you some of the ones. I mean, the scholars are really split on this. Ungers of the Unger Bible Dictionary and, and uh, Clarence Larkin and John Phillips, Dr. J. Vernon McGee and Dr. Warren Wearsby. They all believe this view right here. There was a time, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I haven't changed my mind on things much over the years because I had good training up front and I always studied things well before I settled on what I thought the Bible taught. But uh, in this case, uh, somewhere over the years, I changed my original view. You'll see both of them are, are you can make a valid argument for both of them. Now, here's the second view. The second view is that paradise and Abraham's bosom have always been synonyms of heaven. So that when an Old Testament saint died, they went to heaven right then. Just like New Testament saints do today. Now we know New Testament saints do that. The Bible makes that clear. But it's not clear, uh, easily clear, uh, for the Old Testament saints. So here we have these two different views. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible, and we're going to see how these views compare back to Luke chapter 16. Now, we looked at this in, in pretty good detail back earlier in the study, but now we're just looking for this one particular thought here that's in front of us. Luke chapter 16. If you remember, there was... Uh, there was a certain rich man, verse 19, and there was a beggar, verse 20. Both of them died, and uh, verse 22 says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. There's that term. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, remember that word hell there, is the Greek word Hades. Sometimes The King James translates Hades as hell, but the newer translations translate Hades as Hades. It's a transliteration. So, uh, uh, so in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, 
and seen Abraham afar off. Notice he, it says seen. He saw Abraham afar off. Uh, and, and Lazarus, that's the, that's the uh, beggar, in his bosom. And so he cried out and he asked for a drop of water and so on and so forth. So the ones who hold the, the, the view, number one view that we talked about, where there's two compartments in Hades originally, they would say this is a proof text because, uh, because the rich man could look over and see Lazarus from where he was. So it couldn't be too far between one and the other because you could see one from the other. Well, is that definitive? I'm not sure it is. Medical science tells us today that you cannot recognize an individual past 150 feet. Now, you can see further than that. You can see a star because a star is huge and putting out light in the night sky. The furthest you can see probably here on earth is if you're looking at something high like a... Uh, like a skyscraper, you can see a skyscraper from 50 miles away. But science tells us as far as recognizing a face, that face can't be passed at, at 25, it, well, it says at 25 feet. That begins to diminish some. And when the time you get to 150 feet, there's a zero chance of recognizing something. So if we're going to assume these two sides of Hades were, were close enough for them to see each other and recognize each other. They were only 150 feet apart, these two people, one in, in uh, the blessing side of Hades, the other in the torture side of Hades. That seems pretty impossible, doesn't it? I think it's more likely that the scene here was something God in particular allowed. We would call it a miracle. So if, so if, Hade, if, in, the, if in Hades those two chambers were a mile apart, God let the rich man see, like through a vision or a miracle. He let the rich man see what was happening, even though it might be a mile apart or ten miles apart. Or... If you take that second view, it could be a million miles apart. But what's the difference between a mile, ten miles, or a million miles if God's working a miracle? So this does not, in a definitive way, teach the two compartments in Hades. If you read it with the mindset of that number two view, you could read it that God has worked some type of miracle to let somebody in Hades see somebody in heaven. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a norm. It's the only time in the Bible we have anything like this. And so it would be quite the exception. So there we have the, uh, the text in Luke 16. Now there are, three other, there are three other texts that people who believe the number one view, two compartments... Uh, though there's three other verses that they use as proof text. By the way, I read to you some of the men who, who believe 
that there's two compartments. How about the people who believe that second view, that there never was two compartments, the Old Testament saints went right to heaven. Listen to this lineup. Dr. Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible, and he wrote about it in great detail in his book called Basic Theology. The Moody, Moody Bible Institute Handbook on Theology, John MacArthur, Dallas Theological Seminary, and so forth. i got about another five listed there. So you can see on both sides of this are great scholars. So, here's the first text they would use, and probably the most important text they would use here. But I think we can see it's not definitive one way or the other. Now, the next verses I put on the screen for time's sake. Look at your screen again. And uh, this is in Acts chapter 2. This is at Pentecost, and Peter is standing up preaching a great message. And he quotes from the Psalms while he's preaching, and this is what, he's, and this is what he says, quoting from the Psalms. It says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So the people who believe that number one view of two compartments, they would say that uh, Jesus went to Hades, and he went there for the purpose of taking all of those people who were in the blessed side of Hades, taking them on to heaven. By the way, whether he did that between his death and resurrection, those three days, whether he did it then or whether he did it 40 days later at his ascension, that's a debatable detail of that first view. Then, and so, nor will he let his Holy One see corruption. So what we see here, the most we can take from this is that Jesus went to Hades. Doesn't say anything about two compartments. Doesn't say anything about taking one side to heaven with him. Just that he went to Hades. And then the second one, that, that, that the number one group of folks would use to, uh, to, uh, to prove their theology, not in a bad way. This is what they believe. When we, and again, this is Paul writing, and he says, when he ascended on high, Christ, he led cap captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, the number one group that believed in two compartments would say he descended in the lower part of the earth, which was Hades, to, to rescue uh, the believers that were there. And then this top part now, this is one of the key thoughts, is that uh, he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. In that context, he talks about spiritual gifts. But we're just thinking about this, these verses. And so, he led captivity captive. Now, one thing we know for sure is, who he led was already in captivity. And then it seems strange, he led them into being captive. Well, if they're in captivity, they're already captive. I think what this means, and the plainest way to understand this, is that he led those who are in captivity to sin and Satan, he led them 
to be captive to he himself. So when a sinner gets saved, they're delivered from the captivity of sin and Satan, and they become captive to Christ. They become his, and he belongs to them, and they belong to him. Now, if we were to understand this to mean believers who were in one part of the two compartments in paradise, we would have to believe that, that God is referring to those in, in the blessing side of Hades. You'd have to consider them being captive after they died and as a believer. They were being captive. But that's what this group believes. And they believe he took them and he uh, brought them on high. That's the, well, how they see the phrase, he led captivity captive. Again, it's not definitive. You can kind of see those, both views, can't you? Nod your head like this. Oh, no, you're not asleep. <laughs> kind of see both views. But it's not definitive. One, uh, another verse that they would use, and this is in 1 Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Man, isn't that beautiful? The just for the unjust. You and I could write our names on that unjust side. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. So Jesus preached to spirits who were disobedient. So we're talking about the lost. He preached to the lost. Now some cults, which twist Scripture in a terrible way, have said that Jesus went to Hades... And he gave people there a second chance. And he preached the gospel. That would be totally foreign to the scripture. And it would be totally contradictory to scripture. So we know that's not the case. Matter of fact, this word preached here. This word preached is not the most commonly used word for preach in the New Testament. The most common word is where we get our word evangel or evangelist or evangelical and so forth. And it means good news. <laughs> it means the preaching of the gospel, good news. That's not this word. This word is used in, in New Testament times as a proclamation from the king or from the emperor. Emperors would send out messengers and they would go and read a message real loud in, in the in the city square, it was a message from the king. It was a proclamation. That's what this word says. Some newer translations, not many, but one, I found one or two that translated, made a proclamation. So what proclamation did he make? I do not know. Maybe one day in heaven we'll find that out. But I think... Maybe he made some proclamation that the price had been paid for the sins of mankind. And if they had not rejected the revelation they had, that blood would have atoned for them. I don't know. That would be my guessing. And so, 
Again, this is not definitive. What we know from this is that Jesus went. By the way, the word went there is an interesting word. He went. He took a journey. He took a journey somewhere and preached to the spirits. And, and so I think, he, I think this journey was to Hades. Because we, we've already been told in Acts 2 that his soul would not be left in Hades. I think he went to Hades and made this great proclamation to the spirits that were there. But notice it doesn't say anything about two compartments. It doesn't say anything about the um, uh, about Christ taking anybody to heaven. Just that he went to Hades and preached. So those are two. Two very different views. And uh, by all by good scholars. One more verse on this thought, and that is uh, in 2 Kings 2.11. You know the story. Elijah uh, was the great prophet. Elisha now was his, uh, his disciple and was going to take his place when Elijah left. And they were traveling together, and they were going to go across the Jordan. And, and Elijah wrapped his mantle, his, his uh, outer garment, around his hand and hit the water. And, uh, and the water opened up and the two of them went across. A miracle. And then this chariot and horses of fire came along and translates Elijah. Now, so look at the verse. Then it happened. As they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. <coughs> it's important to see that, that Elijah went into heaven. Now, view number one that believes in the two compartments, they would say he went up into the first heaven. Remember, there's three heavens, atmosphere, space, and God's heaven. And they would say he went up, he just went up into this air and sky until he disappeared from everybody. But he didn't go to God's heaven. And uh, because he would need to wait till the resurrection of Christ for that. Uh, but if you just read it the way it sounds, it looks like he went to God's heaven. But let's say for a moment he just went into the heaven, uh, the atmosphere. So now we're to assume, think it, think it through. Now we're to assume that, that uh, Elijah went up into the heavens and out of sight. And then he circled back around and somehow enters into the interior of the earth into Hades. It just sounds unlikely to me, doesn't it to you? I think you can tell by now that I believe the second view is correct. Even though these great men hold this first view, great men hold the second view as well. I believe Old Testament saints went to heaven as soon as they died. And uh, I believe paradise and Abraham's bosom are synonyms for heaven itself. Remember Paul used paradise that way when he spoke about the three heavens... He said he was caught up and got to see things that were in the third heaven. Then he 
Then he used the term things that were in paradise. So he used the word paradise and the third heaven interchangeably. Now again, the first view would say that, well, that was after the resurrection, though, and it was. But he used them interchangeably. He didn't say that paradise was now in heaven. He just used them as synonyms in that text. Well, I hope that clears it up a little bit or makes it more confusing one. I'm not sure which. So when you read about these things, you, you can see both views held by great men. Let me sum up with just some quick thoughts right here. The biblical truth about heaven and hell sh should encourage us to be thankful. How thankful we should be for the love of Christ. Amen? He redeemed us. He rescued us from that place called hell. And uh, we should be thankful for the cross and for the blood of Jesus. Only the cross only the blood can wash away sins. We should be thankful for the forgiveness of sins that we received when we trusted Christ. And then uh, we should be thankful for our home in heaven. We don't have to go to that place, though we deserve it, called hell. We get to go to a place called heaven because of what Jesus did. Amen? And then one more thought under being thankful. Thankful for Christ's care for us through life. He's not only our Savior, but that He is, and a glorious Savior He is. But He's also our shepherd, isn't He? He takes care of us. He's the one that will give us strength and courage when we look to Him, when the lions are all around us. And, uh, and we can endure. We can go through troubled times with strength and courage because of Him and His strength. And then... The second thing is, not only should we be thankful, we should pray. It should make us pray. Pray for our family. We don't want our family to go to hell. We, want, we need to pray for our family. Make a prayer list if you don't have one and put them down there so you can remember. Pray for them every day or every other day. If you've got a long prayer list, maybe once a week. But uh, pray for them regularly. And then uh, pray for your friends as well, that they'll come to know Christ as Savior. And uh, pray for the church and its ministries, because one of the reasons the church is here is to reach people with the gospel and bring them to Christ so they don't go to hell. So pray for your church and pray for your church ministries. And then, not only that, serve. Serve the Lord yourself. Get involved in the church. Find a place to serve in the church. Everybody ought to find some place, some way to serve in the church. And then, outside the church. Maybe somebody in your neighborhood is sick and you could take them some soup. Or you could mow their grass. Or you could help somebody serve people outside the church. Look for ways to serve the Lord outside the church. And then showing, always showing the love of Christ in our service. And then the last thing is this. Share. Share uh, with your family and friends. Share the gospel. Share what Jesus has done for you. And you can share in many different ways. You can share on social media, tracts, literature, books. And, uh, and then you can share verbally. And it should always be lovingly, by the way. It's, it's not always best to win the argument. What you're trying to do is win the person, not the argument. So do it lovingly and with kindness and with compassion. And then, of course, if you've never trusted Christ, the most important thing is to get saved yourself so that you miss that place called hell and you'll end up in that place called heaven. Amen? Trust, and for us believers, let's keep trusting that unseen hand. One more little part of that. 
The last verse of that song, The Unseen Hand, says, I long to see my Savior's face and sing the story saved by grace. I've asked JT to sing that song for us this morning. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and uh, you can sing along if you like. The words will be on the screen, but you probably will not know this song. Maybe you will a little bit. And you can sing along if you like, or you can just listen to JT sing these beautiful words. Bow with me, please. I wonder how many would say, Preacher, I'm not saved. Pray for me. No one's going to embarrass you or come to you. If you don't know you're going to heaven, raise your hand let me pray for you. Anyone like that? I'm looking around the room. Hold your hand up long enough for me to see it. Okay. I wonder how many would say, Preacher, I want to learn to trust the one who is unseen. I want to trust his unseen hand. Pray for me. Is that your prayer today? Raise your hand up. Yes, all over the building. Many, many, many hands all over the building. Father, thank you that there is an unseen world. And thank you for the glories of heaven and redemption through the blood. Help us to be thankful people. How thankful we should be. You've seen the hands of your people. We face difficulties to go through. Help us to go through them with strength and courage because our eyes are upon you, because we're trusting that unseen hand, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand, please, if you would. And JT's going to sing.